I'm Roy Sharples and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights? Are you growing your career? Or are you a dear friend helping to spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. Metropolises inspire creativity as a space for social integration, dreaming, making, and doing, where citizens can realize their full potential to live a more enriched, fulfilled, and happy life. Combined with the chemistry of individual human genius, Major city breakthroughs are a social process that occurs when a diverse community of like-spirited, purpose-led and mission-driven creative people come together. Societies are a catalyst for creating influential art and socio-cultural movements. This can be seen from the ancient Egyptian Memphis, classical Athens and Renaissance Florence to the French Revolution and Romanticism in Paris, to post-war New York and London. Historically, industrial cities like Manchester, Glasgow and Detroit have an ingrained maker and doer ethos and port towns such as Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Dublin and Liverpool have a constant exchange, diversity of people and international trade. The modern day digital revolution was born in Silicon Valley within the San Francisco Bay Area of California with its burgeoning startup and global technology innovation scene and its culture of openness and free exchange of ideas. Creativity is a way of living. Creative hubs and the experiences gleaned through entrepreneurship and innovation improve people's lives. They make societies more productive and improve the places we live, work and play. Setting the right conditions for the urban revolution is essential for a better life and society. Designing and operating a society is like a mixing desk that takes all the sources and attributes of a society, cultural, economic, political and technological, and considering how to prioritise, combine, mix and change the level and dynamics of bringing it together into solutions that will deliver the outcome you want the society to be based on, the goals, principles and policies you set, and how you operate and execute them. The bottom line is that a creative society is where people are open-minded and have broad perspectives to overcome prejudices and obstacles. They feel empowered, free and safe to express themselves and create without fear and approach problem solving openly and innovatively by trying out new ideas and ways of thinking and doing. I'm joined by Gary Burt to discuss creative societies and why setting the right conditions for the urban revolution is essential for life and society. Hello and welcome, Gary. What is a creative society and what difference do they make? Well, if we take creative society, I think it's it's an environment. And we shouldn't get too hung up on the words, but it's an environment where we are creating the freedom that people can express themselves. They can be who they are safely. They can, you know, whether that's in art or work or in the way that they live, it's about being able to express and communicate your values, things that matter to you without fear. And 
And I say without fear, not not just in the sense of either physical fear, because there are cities where certain lifestyles are not welcome, but also in terms of seeing art as being welcome, seeing um, uh, music being played on the street as being welcome. So it's about, you know, creativity for me is about letting people be people, about letting humans embrace the, the whole range of what we do as a society and having that valued by other people. And, you know, and when we look at cities, we see huge differences in this. But when we look at creative cities, we see a, a few common threads which start to tie these together, even though the countries that they're in can be significantly different in terms of their underlying, you know, their, their national culture. We can certainly see cities that, that take on um, an, a norm that's replicated around other places, even though they're, they're in different countries. And I remember reading the book back in the late 2000s, the, the, the Logic of Life by Tim Harford. And he made the point in that book around New York City and the economics of migrating to, to New York, where the, the economic rationale was that there wasn't any economic rationale. And he made the point that $1 is worth 61.2 cents in New York. And what he meant by that is what costs 61 0.2 cents elsewhere in the US in the US costs $1 in New York. So why do people insist on living and working there? Is it because they can earn more? No, this does not necessarily appear given given the rationale and and, and statistically New Yorkers only earn at that point 50 15% higher than the national U, US average salary. And he believed that the reason for people migrating towards New York was despite the higher costs of living in big cities, it's the exposure to innovative ideas and being around like-minded people. And really, fundamentally, innovation was a key driver for people moving towards these metropolitan areas as opposed to residing within more rural areas, thereby offering a more enriched life experience and, and fulfillment. No, I think I think it's it's a it's an area of research that's been picked up by a number of economists. Certainly, I think it's Richard Florida has written some good work on this. But you know what we what we try to do, what an economist will try to do is to, is try to ultimately drill down to the financial element of this. Yeah. But I I think it's it's it isn't the financial element comes after the human element. Mm. So, you know. We see the prices rise. So if we pick a, a successful, vibrant, innovative city, you know, we're not going to, if, if it's matured over a while, it, it's not going to be someone with, with inexpensive property. But the, the expensive property came after the innovation, came after it being a people hop. It was this, it was the, you know, the scarcity of the, pop, of the um, property, which drove the price of supply and demand. But ultimately that attract, attractiveness came before the city. Yeah, and I think this is the the really good point here is there's a there's a really good um, potential model for other cities to say, look, if you do want to regenerate, the regeneration comes from creating the space that people want to go to. That's that's the key thing. Not about thinking how can we build these amazing buildings. That's completely missing it. It's it's the wrong way around. How can we? You know, when we look at regeneration, we, you know, so many think about these landmark, um, iconic buildings, you know, with, you know, star architects, star architects building, you know, these, these huge iconic um, 
places or spaces, when in fact what's really needed is a much more grassroots change to say, how do we start to create the environment that allows the people who are going to create the space to be open, um, welcoming, collaborative, artistic? How do we start to attract that? Because it's when that is successful and we start to see that attract other people that we then start to make the change that then starts to drive the property places, property prices up. And I think, you know, too many cities see this as, as something where the goal is to, is to manage the physical environment when they should be managing the cultural environment. You cannot simply throw money at creative pursuits and expect instant results. It is a social system made up of a network of relationships connected by a distinguishable similarity of spirit and shared values that gravitate toward a coherent whole between individuals, groups, communities, cities, nations, corporations and industries. Societies like Dubai and Singapore are economically led with significant material investment injected into their societies combined with substantial wealth creation which has led to high affluence. Conservative politics and strict laws tend to be unchallenged with high police enforcement tends to drive a more rigid zero tolerance approach and heighten censorship levels. Whilst these societies have comparatively low crime, there is also a lack of diversity of thought, freedom of expression and creativity. Whilst the benefits of CCTV is, is an example and constant surveillance can create a more safe and secure environment, it can diminish people's privacy and creates mistrust. Whilst context, moderation and balance are important, these factors ultimately tally up to being causes for their lack of creative output, especially in comparison to more liberated places like Amsterdam, Berlin, Copenhagen, Glasgow, London, Los Angeles, Manchester, New York City and San Francisco. Yes, these cities all have their own unique quirks and flaws, though the common thread between them is that they put people and culture first, before the economics. Therefore, they are not hampered under compulsion or restraint. People there take ownership and feel safe being themselves. I think the other point is, is I was trying to think of this. I can think of, you know, we can think of Amsterdam, New York, San Francisco, yeah. Berlin, Copenhagen, these amazing creative cities. But is there, is there a model that's done the opposite? Is there a model where we throw money at it and it's not worked? And, I, and there are. Mm. You know, we've had superstar designed, I mean, architect designed blueprinted cities. And, you know, I, I guess um, certainly there's several in China. There are, interestingly, most of them are in Asia. But even if we think of the Middle East and we think of Dubai, where we've had, I would argue, an economic first model. Yeah. And yes, it's been, it, it, it's had economic wealth. But when we look at what's there, you know, would you say Dubai is a creative hub? Is it artistic? Yeah. Absolutely not. You know, it's it's functional in the sense of it has nice buildings, it has great roads, it's got attractions. But, you know, is this is this a really culturally rich place or is it a glorified, you know, um, city as a theme park? I yeah. think, you know... It's, it, it might be great to visit and go skiing indoors whilst it's 40 degrees outside, you know, 100, 110 degrees outside. But is that, is that really 
were you going to be fulfilled as, as, as a place to live? Or do you want to go and live in, a, you know, in Manchester or in, you know, one of the other dozen cities that we've mentioned that are certainly far from perfect, but they are places that are really embracing um, people and diversity, particularly. Let's compare a couple of cities. So um, it's been a while since I um, visited Singapore, but it's, it's, you know, it's got, it's certainly got better at what it does. Um, you know, and it's, it is an incredible city state. Um, but, you know, for, for the benefits of what you receive in Singapore, you know, you do have low crime, you do have an, an, an amazing economic environment. You do have very good quality, everything because it's all managed, but, like others, like, you know, let's put Dubai in this group. What you lose is you lose some diversity of expression and creativity. Yeah. You know, these are places that do not welcome political challenge. You yeah. know, it's not, this isn't, this isn't a scale of, well, that's not, they don't welcome economic challenge. If we look at Dubai, they don't welcome, um, how do we want to put it, lifestyle differences. You know, there are, behaviors there are sexual norms that we accept in the west have been absolutely fine and a normal part of a diverse society that are not acceptable in other countries and other cultures so there's a lot of trade-off now i think we go to liverpool and manchester they, they certainly have more crime than singapore and dubai um but you at a human level you can be who you are. That's not, you can't do that in some other cities around the world that have economic growth. So I think what yeah. we're looking at, you know, the way I always think about this is, is as a, almost like a mixing desk of a lot of faders. What you can't do is you can't push all of the faders up. You've got so many, let's imagine they all go between zero, 10 and minus 10. You can, you can have so many points, but if you push some up, you can't push them all up. So you can have, you can have, um, you know, um, freedom, you can have diversity, you can have, you know, the expression, but the challenge is you're going to have some friction. You're going to have some, some, perhaps some poverty, you're going to have some crime, but if you then push, pull, perhaps pull all the crime fader down, pull the diversity fader down, you know, you can have a different environment. So for me, it is about balance. And, and I think that too often we probably step away from, acknowledging that the balance is is it, it it's a positive thing in the sense of we are accepting these problems we may not like them and we want to challenge them and crime isn't great anywhere but we do accept that these are necessary to be able to have the other freedoms that we have so if we look at you know many of the cities that have the greatest diversity they 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 have some real social challenges there as well certainly Amsterdam does, certainly San Francisco does, London does, Manchester does. You you have a level of um, poverty and um, exclusion that doesn't exist, I would argue, in Singapore. But so but what's the trade-off there? You know, and I think what we should be doing is we should be, you know, recognizing that whilst we need to challenge this, this isn't a point of failure. It's 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 almost a it's almost a cost for the benefits that we have. And what we need to do is address those in a way that doesn't discourage the the positive. So when we look at you know an example would be, um, you know one of the things is we start to say right we need to we need to reduce crime in a city, a, 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 let's say a creative city like Manchester. Well, there are a whole you know be careful to look at the sources of crime and then address those true sources 
not simply ape the um, the structures that you would have in Singapore and Dubai for how they how they deal with crime. You know, a lot of CCTV, very aggressive policing, closing down of, you know, aggressive closing down of undesirable places, um, oppression of, you know, challenging thought and behavior. So I think when we start to look at city, it is important to realize that that when we start to look at those designs, there is a choice. And if you start to move one of those faders, you're going to push another one down. So I think it's important to be conscious of those trade-offs. So we say, look, if we if we if we increase one benefit, we need to be very careful. For example, if we're in, if we're addressing crime, that we're not reducing liberty, we're not reducing you know private spaces. Um, so I think you know it isn't. I think possibly the the interesting thing as we think about this. Is, it isn't possible to have all of the faders up. You can't have zero crime and expression and freedom and, you know, real cultural, human and economic diversity. It's it's a balancing act that's really, really bloody hard to do. The problem is that most, lots of big cities are actually formed of, you know, a number of smaller councils, which can be really diverse in their approaches. So I think, I think there are things that we can take from a whole range of places. Um, so without picking one city, let, let's start to look at some of the characteristics and then, and then we can start yeah. to point yeah, to yeah. cities. So I think, you know, what's, what's impressed me about cities. I was absolutely blown away by when I first visited Copenhagen about yeah. its focus on design. It's for, now it's, it's a real hub of design. And you think, well, how does a city encourage design? But you think, this isn't just a, a case of saying, right, we want a design district. We want to attack design businesses. We want to be positive towards them. It's about some of the decisions that city cities make in terms of the, the, you know, the civic furniture, their priorities in terms of what they're allowing, um, the way they're approaching the promotion of the city. So there's certainly a real positive there. Um, I love, you know, for me, another, so another one is I love cities that are care about the details of what they're doing in the spaces that they do control. So when they are building, you know, they're, when they're putting in public furniture, they're not, they're thinking about what that's used for. They're thinking about whether that's a positive or a negative contributor to the area. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, that there's certainly councils in London that have put in seating that is purposely designed to be, um, so you can sit on it, but you couldn't lie on it, you know, so that's intentionally designed to be unfriendly to sleeping. Um, you know, we've seen the negative design in terms of, um, buildings allowing studs to be put in public areas to stop people sitting on this, you know, a really negative design aspect. Anyway, so going to the positives, I think, what do we need to see? What, you know, um, I'll give you, I'll tell you a city I've visited, I've visited a few times, but certainly the first time I visited it, it absolutely knocked me for six, was um, Chicago, um, Millennium Park. So in Millennium Park, it may have changed. It was a few years ago that I went there, but a city that I thought really got it right was the, um, the art installation, and then I'm sure you can Google it and find the name for it. The art installation in um, in uh, Millennium Park or at the edge of it, which was two huge walls that had projected faces onto them, maybe TV screens, with a um, maybe a two-foot, 18-inch paddling pool, big 100-metre, 200-metre paddling pool between them. I visited on a hot day, 
And what you had was you had a public space with hundreds of families and kids playing in the water. Now, that had been designed purely as a place for people to go and positively interact. It's surrounded by grass space. It's surrounded by very safe environment. It's away from cars. And I thought, you know, the architect of that absolutely nailed building an amazing public space. Um, so I think that was right. That was a that was a great, you know, something that really knocked me for six as being a real um, positive. Um, another one around, you know, let's pick another very different city, Amsterdam. You know, Amsterdam has its flaws, absolutely. But what does it do? It, it prioritises human um, transportation, yeah. bikes. I mean, the whole yeah. country does. But it's saying, look, we're not seeing no to cars. We're not seeing cars aren't, you know, you can't use a car. But what we're going to do is we're going to make it easy as far as we can, as easy as possible for humans to safely get around the city. So you'll see trams and bikes everywhere, you know, affordable tram systems, um, you know, bike zones everywhere, huge numbers of bike lanes. And here's a real simple one. The legislation that says bikes come before cars. So if a bike hits a car in the Netherlands, it's guilty. It doesn't matter if the bike rode out. Yeah. The whole point is about making that norm. So if you're a car driver, you're looking around for bikes and you're going, I don't, you know, if that bike swerves out, I've got to stop because I'm going to be liable. And that creates a really different mindset. Yeah. So I think what you start to see is you start to see these jigsaw pieces of learnings that, have, that, that highlight excellence that start to make cities great. And when you look at what are really creative cities, you start to see similar sorts of criteria. You start to see that we've made, we've we've started to make places where people can can safely travel around. So it's not about being anti-car, but it's about saying that there are ways that we can integrate transport into cities that can be very people positive or less people positive. You know, we need to create and embrace open spaces. Yeah. You know, I can imagine that, you know, you know, when if if we look forward, we can go, well. You know, we should build a public space and we go, well, we need to build a public space. Would there in many cities be a debate about whether we had CCTV and active monitoring of that? Or do we need to look at that and go, you know, actually, we, 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 we maybe we do have CCTV, but we, we make it passive. It'll record. But we're not going to monitor it. Why? Because that's you don't want people sat behind the camera monitoring it. I'll tell you a, a really simple, another example of a city that for me, um, I'm thinking the city now. I think it was, I think it was Seattle, or maybe it'd be in Atlanta. So apologies, bit blur. But actually, instead of having their their traffic, so if I look at where I live, so it's it's the northern northwestern part of the UK, the traffic um, wardens, so the traffic enforcement people. Their uniforms are like police. They've got elements of military in there. They really have. You know, they wear stab vests. They've got cameras on. They've got like utility belts with all of their, you know, the phone, <laughs> actually a water bottle and all their, their ticketing pads and cameras on there. You know, and the, that by design, that's intended to look like an official intimidating authority. I could then think of another city and I might have been Seattle. I think it was because you you live there, so you'd be able to tell me. But they, they instead of having this, and and, and this actually, no, it's 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 a number of cities that I'm thinking of that are coming together. But instead of having this, what they had was people in bright yellow t-shirts and shorts, or or you know blue slacks, 
And their job is to be tourist advisors and to help people. Now they can give tickets, but the whole point is very different, that their function is to help people be positive and to try to help, try to have a conversation with the guy parking the car that he's not in there. But they can issue the tickets. The point is, though, that their primary function, their primary purpose is not to intimidate, it's to help. Yeah. But they have ultimately the same power that they can issue the tickets. The difference is that they can do a dozen things, a hundred things more than the guy who does the tickets. Because when you've got a guy who's got a uniform to be frightening and austere, and I, I would argue it's not just, it's, it's almost paramilitary, it's certainly beyond the police, and it's certainly beyond a friendly police outfit. He's designed to be not approachable. He's designed to be a position of authority. So when you say someone's in a bright yellow T-shirt, you know, with city of X helper, who's who's on their belt, they're not carrying a ticket book. They, 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 can, they might have that in one pocket, but they've got city guides to give out free so they can help people find spaces. That starts to, excuse me, say a very different thing about how they're approaching their environment. So you see, these these little clues and it is it is often really little things that have massive differences on how you want to you know approach the city and how you want to do it and the whole point of this is what's going to make the city great is not one or two mega things it's not one or two mega plans it's actually a mindset and hundreds of small actions which are very carefully thought through about what it is that you want to achieve and what it is you want to communicate at a human level. So, you know, we built public spaces, we've built it and you go, well, if we build it 18 inches deep, that means children can um, drown in there. Yes, it does. It also means they can run around, splash and have a brilliant time. So make it 18 inches, not, you know, not six feet. Don't put a mesh over it because that defeats the whole point. Don't put studs around it so people can't climb into the water. So I think, you know, what is what is making creative cities? It's it's not about one or two things. It's about hundreds of these tiny micro changes to create almost a combination of things which is imperceptibly different to other places and imperceptibly attractive. Um, you know, I think even even you know a, a re- another really simple one is about how you approach parking charges are a real pain of mine. So are you approaching parking charges with a view of people will be late, they might be shopping, so we're never going to ticket for more than 15 minutes after the time? Because, you know, you've, you've got a family. My, you know, it's been a while since my, my kids were, were in um, nappies or diapers. But if they're kidding, they, 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 we're, we're going back to the car. There's five minutes on the car. Daddy, I need the toilet. Oh my God. Well, I need to get back to the car. Exactly. And and you go, no, Daddy, I need the toilet. Okay, we've got to go to the toilet. The shop's two, three minute walk away. That's the nearest public toilet because in most cases, you know, councils and towns have cut back on any public amenities. So, all right, there's a McDonald's five minutes away. We can go there. We know they've got a great clean toilet. So I'll go into McDonald's. You come back, you've got a ticket on the car because you were five minutes late. What does that say oh, about those values of the city? When we met last year at Lime Street train station in Liverpool, there was a queue within the car park, which delayed us from exiting by a few minutes, which resulted in us exceeding the 20-minute free parking curfew. And as we approached the parking attendant to underwrite the fee caused by no fault of our own, 
he refused to cave in and we had to pay. Now this sets the wrong tone and image for a city, making you less likely to return because it creates a negative impression that mushrooms. After all, you're going to share your experience with your friends and network and that force multiplies. Unfortunately, people with an axe to grind can sometimes gravitate towards these types of professions. For example, some of the North American border controls are particularly polarising and pointlessly bureaucratic and obnoxious. They treat everyone with suspicion, a chancer or a prospective criminal, unlike cities like Johannesburg, where the airport customs officers are affable and pragmatic about getting you in and out of the facility as quickly and painlessly as possible, certainly from my experience. Similarly, T5 at Heathrow is well designed to get you in and out of the terminal as quickly as possible. Yeah, I'll give you another example. So, you know, Blackpool, which for those who don't know, it's a seaside tourist destination, has several million visitors in the UK each year. So if you depend, there's a couple of main ways in it off the motorway or the freeway to, to come into the town. Now, if you go in one way, you'll you will you know be able to get to the city center without problem if you go one of the other ways um then you'll pass i think two speed cameras going into the city so you could in theory by the time you get to the center maybe pass two cameras on the way out i think there's four now now clearly the speed cameras were put in because there was a problem with speed as typically maybe cars were exiting quickly wanted to get home wanted to get to the motorway so they put four speed cameras in so Here's the question. So what is the goal? Is the goal the goal is to reduce the speed the speed of the traffic? Okay, that's okay. So the decision then was right. So there we put a speed camera in. So what you find is the speed clearly happens outside of the area of the speed camera because we know people slow down and speed up. So they put in another speed camera. So what happens is you have these four, I think it also speed cameras on the way out of the town. Now, what no one ever thought about is I bring my family to to Blackpool. I have a great time. I'm not going to come there without spending a lot of money. You know, it's not an ex, it's not a rich place, but you know, by the time, if you've got kids, you've bought ice creams, you've gone on a theme park, you've gone on a ride, you've got an attraction, you've bought a fluffy toy, you know, you've spent money and you've contributed. You're not going to be able to go to a tourist destination, not spend some money. You've got to eat. So, but then you come out and you're driving out, you're thinking about the day. What a great day we've had. Flash, flash. What? And then you, your day is instantly ruined because what you've done is you've instantly massacred that that thought with the fear of a ticket and points. Yeah. So instead of thinking that was great, I've got a hundred quid fine, potentially three points, a rise in my insurance. Perhaps if I'd speeded before, perhaps I could be putting my job at risk if I'm a driver. Yeah. And that's there, there are four of these that you've got to pass through. So God for sake, if you get another one, yeah. What is the point of this? So what we've done is we've gone the the we've taken the opportunity to take some revenue because I'm sure these these you know net positive, but us will destroy the day. Yeah. If you want to slow the traffic, use good design. You can put trees in the side of roads. You can put you can narrow the road. You that's I'm not going to traffic experts will tell us there's a whole range of things which you can do in terms of the de- urban design of the road to slow the traffic naturally down. 
So there are certainly things that you could do that are not speed cameras that, that naturally slow traffic down. So all of those were, were either not discussed or were, were rejected for the one thing that you really wouldn't ever want to do, which is to risk in the last few minutes of a family leaving a town that you could destroy the memory of that place. <laughs> because if you go whizzing past the speed camera and you get a ticket, I'll bet you're going to bloody remember that in the future. Yeah. So what you have is the you have this subconscious negative drive to revisit. And this was by design. And it's not okay, oh, well, speeding cars were a problem. No, no. Speeding cars may have been a problem. Your solution of putting speed cameras in there was an active design. You know, and I think when we start to go back to the cities, this is this is ultimately the issue that no one it, no one ever thought of the quality of experience that we wanted to give the visitor. Because if they did, they would never put a speed camera there. Um, you know, Disney has Disney is a is a master is a master at doing this. You know, there's a whole range of um, fantastic design aspects in there that are designed to elicit the right behaviours from you without being negative or without you even realising that that's happened. But in cities, we often fail. We, we, we revert to a terrible view of humanity. You know, traffic wardens that have to be paramilitary, you know, speeding that has to be, a ticket. <laughs> it has to be enforcement. It's, well, it's, yeah. you, you misbehave in a, in a theme park someone will very quietly come up to you and have a word and remind you that you're, you're being there, you may have paid, but it's a privilege. Yeah. They're not going to walk up and find you. You know, they do want you to come back. So they will look about how that can be managed. But the other thing they'll do really subtle, they're not going to allow you to get drunk. You can go and have a drink. What you can't do is absolutely go and get steaming there. So there's a lot of these really subtle measures to start to, influence behavior in a really positive way. And I guess coming back to the topic, that's what we need to start doing in cities. But where does it start? It starts with humans. It starts with people and going, what do we want people to experience? What do we want to encourage? Amsterdam in particular, you know, it's got a very liberal, bohemian culture. And many of the people there, you know, live in houseboats and they use bicycles, to your point, as a primary source of transportation. And so, and that they really are capitalizing or making good use of the natural environment. Ideologically, it's not 100 miles away from what Frank Lloyd Wright did. He built an architecture that represented the vast American landscape's unique identity, its diversity of people, and its democratic ideals of freedom. And he did this by harmoniously connecting it all together through his organic architectural design, where form followed function so that the buildings, furnishings, environment and surroundings became part of a unified and interrelated composition. It, this was most famously manifested in Falling Water, a design from which its inhabitants could see, hear and feel nature and to quote, unfolding like an organism from the seed within, which exists in the continuous present to satisfy social, physical and spiritual needs. I'd also add Glaswegian architect Charles Rennie Mackintosh to that mix as well, where he put Scotland on the architectural map 
as a centre for creativity, for art and design, and that was manifested through his redesign of the Glasgow School of Art, which is an absolute architectural masterpiece. I think it's a brilliant point that about this. So I think, you know, Falling Water gets a, a huge amount of, of attention, quite rightly. But, you know, and he did, he did certainly build some uh, and uh, art, designed some amazing places. But if you look at one of the houses he built that I, I was fortunate enough to visit last year, Talisin, yeah, which is built on really built on a few string. It's not a it's not a you know beautiful um, marbled place. It was built in places. It was built and funded by him having um, students study with him on on the plot of land that he bought. And I think for me, that's a really great example of this, that that what he did was it was all about creating the right place for people to live in. You know, it is amazing. You know, um, two quick points um, to pick up on and I'll come back. So first one is the point about um, um, airports. And I'll give you two great examples. So I come into, I was going to say Seattle, but I've, I've been there so many times and you're absolutely right. Yeah. Huge number of um, desks, vast majority of them always closed. You know, a, a small number of them open at any one time. Um, until recently, the US has been really slow to adopt electronic check-ins. You know, electronic passport scans, it's insisted on um, people. Now, the, the reason for that, but the pros and cons. I then compare that to uh, Palmer Airport in Mallorca. So a small, smallish um, tourist island that has a high number of visitors. So, you know, I go there and I'm not, I don't, I don't walk in with, you know, hugely high expectations of a, of a tourist place. One of the slickest airport operations I've ever been through. Why? Because it was designed to not provide friction. They have a lot of people passing through. So what do they have? They have very clear signage. They don't have clutter they it's designed for people to flow through but when you come to the the um immigration desk there aren't as you'll find in manchester half a dozen machines for you know when a plane lands of whatever two three hundred people a couple of planes land you know four five six hundred people and six machines you can work out the maths of that or even worse liverpool airport with like three human desks so you look at um mallorca they have something like 40 um Q Q point. So 40 machines where people can go through and process. Now, anyone without going into the details of queuing theory, you don't need to be a genius to realize that, you know, six or 10, 40 machines that are taking maybe less than 10 seconds to process each applicant. You know, you put your you put your passport on, it scans it, the door opens, you walk out the next door, 10, maybe 15 seconds. Now compare that to the time it takes certainly at many um, US airports to go through the immigration and, and arrivals process. You know, it's a world of difference. So what happens is the plane lands. I'm through the airport in minutes. It, it really is minutes. They also put the effort into the baggage. So they're, they're really fast about unloading the planes. Why? Because that creates a great experience. By the time you've been through, they're working like mad to get those bags out onto the carousel so you can get out of the airport and enjoy your holiday. Now, when you don't see that experience, we need to hold people to account. This is by design. You know, it is. You know, and coming back to the, the, the Frank Lloyd Wright thing, 
Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, absolutely brilliant about putting people first. But let's take that back to, um, you know, modern housing, yeah. where we see houses that are not built for people. You know, I, you know, in the in the UK, I think anyone who's been recently will see that a lot of the green space that was between housing developments has closed, has has been filled up by lots and lots of housing. And, you know, similar thing in, in many other countries as well. But all of the houses are broadly the same designs as they were 20, 30, 50, even, you know, 100 years ago. They haven't massively changed in 50 years. But let's highlight some of the real points. We're building housing estates with no parks, with no shared space. We, If we build any any shared environment, it's a park that's designed for children up to six, but we don't put anything after that because we don't want older children playing there. Now, the thing is, they've got nowhere to go. So when older children do start to congregate there, what do we do? We stick CCTV and tell them they can't and chase them off. But we build garages that have that are too small for the average size of the car. So, well, why is it a garage? Instead of making it a garage, which is, you know, for a house builder, really cheap, and you can say it's got a garage, it's, it's completely useless as a car space, you know? So why not make it a functional space? Why not actually go, how can we start to make this a usable space? We've got places with, you know, tiny bedrooms, but no moving walls, um, you know, completely unadaptable houses that are designed to be, you go to a housing and then pick a number of bedrooms and then pick one of two or three designs. Well, out of you know an estate of 600 houses the best we can do is pick one of maybe 10 models that you want to live in is that the best you know you compare frank lloyd wright trying to express um the very best of enabling humans and enabling people and then modern buildings which are just you know they don't reflect modern life at all they're completely inflexible they're, they don't, you know, many of the buildings don't function in terms of how they should because, you know, they're, they're either um, too big or the, the, the footprint of the house is that small that we then try and cram far too much into that. But we don't do that in a way that's great design. We do that in a pace that's that's actually trickery. So we build houses that are, are actually functionally scaled down. They look bigger, but when you look at the measurements, it's, it's, a, it's a much, much smaller three-bedroom house, but by design, I mean, bad use of clever design. What we've done is we've made it look bigger than it is. But when you start to measure the ceiling smaller, the walls smaller, but we scaled down the windows, you know, we can do better. And I think the core point is to start calling this out and holding people to account because I look at this and go, 200 houses, no shared space, no paths, you know, no walking areas between buildings that are not roads. And we have... Um, discontinuous pavements. And what I mean by that is you'll have a pavement and then the pavement will stop where there's a drive or the, the pavement just ends and you have to sort of cross over and walk down a bit before you get to another pavement. We have, you know, discontinuous pavements. You know, is this is this going to be something that we're proud of? You might, it might be nice to live there, but is this going to be something that's going to be sustainable? Or is it is it something that's just going to really limit creativity? Yeah, I can't help thinking we're just missing something. You triggered another insight, Gary. Modernist architecture pioneer Le Corbusier 
reinvented industrial housing into tenement buildings that mirrored streets at ground level and maximized space. Stanley Kubrick used these principles in his movie A Clockwork Orange to create a futuristic world, as did Park Hill, a public housing estate in Sheffield, South Yorkshire in England, were inspired by Le Corbusier's Streets in the Sky. The spirit of this was captured sonically within some of the early recordings of the city's local synth pop band, The Human League, and also Home Crescents in Manchester and Quarry Hill Estate in Leeds are similar. Brutalism followed the modernist blueprint where form followed function to design buildings that resembled what they are, such as the Barbican in London, which is one of the finest manifestations of the brutalist utopian design for inner city living. Another architectural and design marvel of industrial Britain was the spectacular Battersea power station that dominated the London skyline and has been an endless source of inspiration, such as featured in Pink Floyd's Animals, as well as many other music, videos, films, and television programmes. Absolutely. And I think, I think to, to give... To, to give Sheffield its credit, so, you know, it's Park Hill, for, for those who don't know, go, go and have a look and see what it was like. But we've seen that, what we've seen the last few years, is we've seen it rejuvenated. Um, we've also seen that when we start to recognise the failures of some of these, um, and there's actually some really good examples of um, the, the regeneration of failed housing on the outskirts of Manchester as well, and some of the Manchester... Um, boroughs as well and suburbs as well. So we've seen again these these areas that were failing, um, that were failed public housing, that actually when they went to private housing, what they've done is they've gone, what are the what are the failings here? And how do we start to address these? Not condemn them, but how do we start to evolve these? And I think one of the good things, you know, one of the things that, you know, uh, um, if you I'm not an artist. I would certainly never, never go down that road. But one of the things that, that certainly you would hear is, is about using what you have, making the best of what you have. And I think there's something that's really good here to say, okay, how do we make this work with what we've got rather than a leaving it and condemning it and doing what we've done with, um, you know, many tower blocks, which is just act, believe that we can't fix it, that there's very little we can do. So we let them become, and actually again, by design, we put, we put troubled families together. So they become troubled tower blocks by, by saying, actually, how can we fix some of these things? We, we have these limitations and the design not may not be brilliant, but how can we make these better human spaces? And I think we've seen with Park Hill that things can be turned around, but it, again, it has to come by putting people at the center and going, how do I, and there's actually a really good test here. How would I make this? How would I evolve this? And that's the right word, which is evolve. It's to move it forward and to adapt. How do I move this forward into somewhere that I would live or I would be happy with my family living? And so, you know, even when we've made the mistakes and in, in and I'd argue some of those were, were mistakes in how we did it, what we should have done was gone, okay, let's evolve it. Don't leave it as something that's either working or not working, but evolve it. And, you know, a, a good example of that that evolution being right is around the Barbican in London. Again, brutalist, yeah. but now highly desirable, questionable at the time. You know, 
And why? Because the architecture actually, actually supports, I get any of the photos, it actually supports people to have mini gardens almost in a tower yeah, block. Right. Now, it would have been very easy for the owners to go, that's a really bad idea because, you know, it holds water and it can damage the concrete. And you know, oh no, this is what makes places great. So trying to fix these things, they can evolve. So when we look at, when we look at areas that do have problems, the right answer, I think too often we see the right answer is, is just to completely bulldoze it, rebuild it again. And what you do is you build the opposite. So again, another, and in parts of Manchester, Salford, we've taken the tower blocks down and which is, they were, they were, they were flawed. They were built on the cheap. There was no consideration really given to a lot of the, the human, um, human quality of life there and replace them with really small cookie cutter, um, um, you know, small houses. Now they're better than they were, but you've got, a, you've got houses that are all completely identical, hundreds of them. Now they're better than what they were, but then, okay, that's a starting point. How do we then start to evolve this and start to not think of this as housing, but as communities and vibrant areas. And that means that somebody needs to take ownership of the of that design and start to make some of those bigger changes of going, right, well, these areas here, we need to allow bikes to go down. These areas, we need to make them, you know, um, war, you know um, um, pedestrian, yeah. you know, but you go back to the tower blocks and you go, and and I just I just stagger at this. You think, well, okay, it's um, let's think of a you know a, a a suburban tower block like we saw in the UK built in the sixties and early seventies. So eighteen twenty stories, maybe six to eight um, dwellings on each floor. You know, a lot of them had had very limited um, opening of windows and things, and it's got quite limited. Um, or a balcony that was unsafe, so you could never open the door because it was unsafe for the kids. But then, you know, what do we do about what do we do about public spaces? Well, there's a there's a park down that if you think of this as it's a it's a, a square building or you know a, a, an oblong building up in the sky that at any one time only one quarter of the build one quarter of the side of the building can see, and it takes 15 minutes to get there. So the idea is that what you, you can you can go there and go in that park and your children can safely play there. What rubbish. And it could have been so different if we'd have said, how's this going to work for families? How, how are they, how is that actually going to work? You know, this was designed to be social housing and you've only got to start thinking of really simple questions to go, you know, to, to start, to start seeing real problems here. And, and I think, you know, how do we start to do things? So we evolve, we recognize the challenges, we start to um, invest in those. But again, we do need to, we do need to just ask honest human questions about, and this, you know, something you and I have done many times about putting yourself in the mindset of the non-expert, not thinking I'm an architect, so we'll talk about this, I'm a designer, but thinking I'm a mum, how's this going to work? Not because the architecture is great and the and the, the the blueprints and nowadays the 3D fly through looks amazing, but how as a mum is this going to work? How as a how as a you know an infirm pensioner is this going to work? So it comes back to some core principles. And I think you know going back to your first question about the buildings, I I even the ugliest building, you know, there's a real there's certainly a, a push in so many cities 
to want to pull down older buildings. Now, you know, they have challenges by today's standards. We look at them and think they're ugly. But typically, this is a point in time. At one point, they were considered, in many cases, beautiful or, you know, visionary. You know, we certainly look at the brutalism movement. And, you know, the view not that long ago was that these were ugly, can be torn down. Well, we hold back on doing that and think, how can we evolve them to work? And then what happens is we go forward, we have this rich tapestry of architecture that's evolved. You know, what when we look at failure and and you know, kudos to Manchester for, for really embracing that evolution of its existing buildings. What is that's that's how to do it. How not to do it is to raise those buildings and then put up, you know, really cheap and nasty, you know, um, concrete and steel structures that are just physically and emotionally hollow and actually have a lifespan of perhaps 20 years. Rather than when we look at Manchester and Liverpool, we're seeing these mills that are two, 300 years old that are now the most desirable flats in the, in the city, the most desirable apartments in the city. So I think... You know, in terms of how we evolve cities, we need to we need to resist that temptation to tear things down, see things for the longer term, but then put this human lens in front and go, okay, we have these issues. How do we work past these? Because, you know, it's not that long ago that the default approach to any large building that was, you know, had problems, old mills have, they need fixing, they need a lot of money spending on them. But once that's done, you've, You've not only protected that old asset, you've reimagined something that becomes an asset for the future. So, you know, the the old buildings in certainly in Manchester and Liverpool, the apartments in those can be worth way more than the new ones. Why? Because the old the older buildings have higher ceilings. None of the new buildings have high ceilings. Why? Because we want to stack as many floors in as possible and as many apartments. So we're never going to have those sort of double height or height and a half, yeah. you know, architectures. We're never going to have, we're never going to have those big windows overlooking the city. Why? Because, well, that's, you know, it's not necessarily the most economic in terms of heating. So we'll have smaller windows that are cheaper. So, and I think, you know, there's certainly a, a core point here that when we start to look at successful cities, that it's no coincidence that many of these are old, you know, they've got heritage and they've evolved, you know, London, Amsterdam, um, San Francisco, Copenhagen. These are cities that there are a lot of old buildings there that have that have evolved. They've lived. They've grown. They've grown old and they've adapted. So I think, you know, certainly if you were, there was ever a town planner, you know, really resist that temptation to want to tear things down. Because I think evidence would show that that's certainly not the way to build a, a highly creative human city. I wanted to provide a nod towards a couple more creative societies. Despite its renowned solidity and organised society, Germany has transformed itself four times throughout the 20th century, from a monarchy to fascist dictatorship, then communism, then democracy. Fear builds walls, and the Berlin Wall separated East and West Germany both physically and ideologically from 1961 to 1989. Current-day Berlin has become one of the most liberated and influential creative societies on the planet. My point being is that Germany is a resilient and adaptive society 
that's philosophical logic and reasoning to rationalise, combined with its disciplined pragmatism, has made it a formidable force throughout time. Asia is a mystic, erotic and spiritually enlightening civilization. East Asia, specifically Japan, is particularly unique in its culture and traditions, partly because historically, Japan has been isolated as a nation, which is reflective in many aspects of its culture. And these characteristics have been developed without outside influence. The Japanese have a supernatural capability as systems thinkers, which is reflective in their precision in making products and offering services and experiences. Tokyo has been particularly influential in animation, arts, automotive, electronics, fashion, manufacturing, printing, publishing, robotic engineering, and its transportation system is second to none. It is clean, reliable, punctual, and uncomplicated. Most people use its Shinkansen trains, subways, and buses to commute to school and work. And finally, many artistic influences were enthused and diffused throughout the Silk Road, most notably the melding of Chinese, Buddhist, Greco, Hellenistic, Indian and Iranian, where art was symbolic of religion and used as a currency for trade across the network of land-based trade routes that connected the East and West from the 2nd to the 18th century. Travel is a catalyst for inspiring innovation and creativity because you experience different cultures and diverse societies learning to appreciate and respect the differences in lifestyle and behaviour that unite us. Travelling forces us to depart from the familiar and take on a new world of new experiences, cultures, languages, architectures, foods and lifestyles, influencing our minds, bodies and souls by shaping us into better, more well-rounded people with a more integrative worldwide view. We get exposed to and understand people's dynamics, life, cultures, subcultures, customs, religions, languages, governments, economics and the arts. Of course idiosyncrasies exist, though fundamentally people are the same everywhere in that we are all born, live and die. We all have loves, hates and passions. We possess the same fundamental structure, brains, organs, nerves and skin. We must eat, drink water, eliminate waste and breathe to stay alive. We become unique when we explore and self-identify by discovering and finding our own strengths and capabilities and manifest and express through our personalities, qualities, talents and achievements. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.